0: All right. Good morning. I'm Rob Berry. If we've never met before, we need to meet. You need to come down front afterwards so we can meet. Um, Cause I'm kind of like my wife. I'm fired up about life, and my wife and I have been married uh, for 17 years. Of September, we got married the week of 9/11, which was crazy town. Uh, when you know flights are canceled, thank goodness we were too poor to actually afford a honeymoon. We were like going to Tyler for a honeymoon. Nothing against Tyler, but. Our first year of marriage was very different for my wife and I than I thought it was going to be. Maybe that's been your experience, too, in marriage. But I was deeply committed to a principle. In fact, I was deeply committed to what I thought was a biblical principle. And here's the principle. Godly people wake up early in the morning and read their Bible. Not bad, right? That's pretty biblical, right? Well, here's the problem. I married a night owl. And my wife went to bed every night with her light on. I'm like, want to be out at 9 o'clock at night if it was up to me. And she'd read her Bible at night, and she, she just had a high value on absorbing God's word before she went to sleep. Crazy, right? And I was so committed to this principle that I was, um, my wife was the sugar mama at the time, speech therapist, and I was going through seminary. And I was so committed to this principle that I wrote a paper in seminary essentially saying something to the effect of godly people must spend time with Jesus in the morning. Psh. I didn't tell my wife about that paper. Uh, but le- all that to say is um, it was tough. And I remember thinking like, okay, Leslie, like, you're free to read your Bible at night, but godly people read their Bibles in the morning, so do whatever you want to do. She finally was like, okay, whatever, you know, I love you, we'll try it out. And I remember we lived in this horrible loft apartment, and we'd get up, I'd get up like whenever the alarm went off, Um, I'd go downstairs, turn on the light, get my coffee on, and get my Bible on. And my wife would get out of bed, and she'd stay upstairs in the loft and pray. And that's where she would start her day before she jumped into God's Word. And I bet three times... I would come back upstairs when I was done, and she was just out cold on the bed. And I thought to myself, what a pagan. Who does that? Here's what, if it wasn't bad enough, right? Um, I got that paper back from that professor, and it all red on the front. It said something to the effect of, Rob, you may want to strongly, and in fact, I strongly urge you to, to reconsider the premise of this paper. What he's saying is, this isn't biblical. And I, I was like, you know, when you get something like that and you're fully convinced you're right, even if it's that crazy, you're like, that Got to know what he's talking about. Through the paper. My wife found the paper and has never f- felt more validated in the 17 years we married. She was like, I told you. And here's the deal. The expectations I put on Leslie that were unbiblical, that robbed us of the fullness of that first year of marriage. God wanted something so much for us that that I just was like, hey, I, I want to put you in this box. But you and I all do, we do that for all kinds of relationships. When we put expectations on a relationship that aren't biblical, we miss out on the fullness of those relationships. And here's the deal. Our relationship with Jesus is no different. When we put expectations on Jesus... That are not biblical, we are robbed of the fullness He wants us to enjoy with Him. We're just robbed of it, and this shows up in a couple ways. You know, whenever we um, put a timeline on God, like why aren't these things happening the way I want them to happen on my timeline? That's when we're putting expectations on God, and we are being robbed of just the fullness of that relationship. Or it could be maybe there's people in your life, people at work. People in your community group that you're like, I would never hang out with those people unless I was forced to do it. And whenever we're putting expectations on God with the people he has around us or the timeline he's put in front of us, we just miss out on a full relationship that God wants us to have with him. This morning, we're going to be talking about a very simple subject that's really hard to apply. We're going to be talking this morning about a proper perspective of Jesus, And we're going to look at three groups of people that all want something from Jesus. Every one of these groups wants something from Jesus. So if you've got your Bible with with us this morning, turn to Luke chapter 23. We'll have it up here if you didn't bring your Bible. Um, And in Luke chapter 23, we're going to be looking at the thieves on the cross paradigm where um, this thing gets quoted all the time. What about the thief on the cross? What about this guy? Here's where we're at on the timeline of Scripture. Jesus is ending his earthly ministry there. He has um, been gone and had a trial, been wrongly convicted. He's been flogged, spit on, beat, put a crown of thorns on his head, you name it. He is profusely losing blood. And he is on his way, when we pick up here in Luke chapter 23, to be crucified. And here we're going to see... the three groups of people, two of those groups of people are going to have the wrong perspective of Jesus. And one of those groups of people is going to have the right perspective. This morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the Romans and the religious ask Jesus to show me. That's the first thing we're going to see is this idea of show me. Second thing we're going to see is we're going to see the rebellious ask Jesus to serve me. And the last thing we're going to see is the righteous ask Jesus to save me. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to pick up in verse 32 here. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, now that's a good place to get crucified, they, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. And they cast sloths to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. My first point this morning is just that the religious asked Jesus to show me. The religious asked Jesus to show me. If you don't know much about soldiers in um, Rome in that day, they're, they're two completely different kinds of people. The soldiers, on one hand, they believed Caesar was God along with all the other gods that they worshiped. They had to take orders from Caesar. And they did not have an extravagance of information about Jesus. They just didn't. They grew up around their Roman culture, their Roman gods, and they were in a place where they had to deal with this Messiah. They did not have an extravagance of information. On the other side, when we see the word rulers in verse 35, think of that as like um, the Senate, where you had Democrats and Republicans that could never get along. And that's kind of what the religious rulers are that day. It's the Sanhedrin. It consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like each other. They read Scripture differently. They didn't get along. But here's what's different with them versus the soldiers, outside of they're not soldiers And that is they have an extravagant, an overwhelming set of information around who Jesus is, who the Messiah should be, who the Christ should look like, what he should look like, what this king should come in and do, they should be able to see Jesus and go, that's the guy that the 39 books that we have memorized, that's the guy. That's Jesus and that's the guy. And so what you need to know about the soldiers or the religious senate essentially is it doesn't matter if you don't have a ton of information about Jesus or if you've got an extravagance of information, you've got to do something with the person of Jesus. Here's what they had. They did have the same thing. From Luke chapter 3 all the way on, the religious senate and the soldiers are around Jesus all the time. And they're hearing him make this crazy claim that he's God and that he's come to save the world and make provision for them. Now, the way he says it's a little weird. He's like, hey, I forgive you of your sins. And everybody around them is like, who can forgive sin but God alone? That's the point. And so, all throughout the book of Luke, we see the soldiers and the senate. We see the religious and the and the uh, and Rome have the same facts about Jesus, and you've got to reconcile who is this man that's being crucified. But look, they have the same request of Jesus. Look at verse thirty-five. Here's what it said. And the people stood by watching him, but the rulers, that's the religious, scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if, if, if he is the Christ. Keep going. Verse 36, the soldiers who mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, saying, if, hey, Jesus, if. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see what they're both saying? They're both making the same request of Jesus, that if you are who you say you are, prove it. Show me. Save yourself. Save yourself. If you've ever um, had just the option to be in a, a watermark staff meeting, that kind of statement comes up all the time. So our staff, 20 of us, we gather here um, every other Tuesday just to get on the same page, make sure we're connected with each other. Hey, are we all connected with what's going on here? Pray for each other, pray for you guys. We do that here every other week. On the off weeks, we drive down to the Dallas campus. Frisco drives in, Plano drives in, Fort Worth drives in. So there's like 200 people in this staff meeting. And this happens twice a month. Not just the meeting, but what actually I'm about to tell you here is somebody will be introducing themselves for maybe the first time, and hey, here's my two-minute story. Or um, somebody asks me a question, they'll say, well, yeah, you know, back in high school, um, I used to sing. Or back in college, yeah, I used to dance. Or be a cheerleader. Or um, like Jason Fisher, our own equipping coordinator, he walked into this trap big time and who I'm used to do front lines, he was like, oh, I used to be a professional jump roper. Now, here's the deal. The same thing happens every single time. One person out of 200 just goes, prove it! And then it's like mob mentality. Now there's like 100, prove it! And within two minutes, the music's thumping, and that person's in the middle like awkwardly dancing or awkwardly jump roping, and it's just over. And everybody's like, what just happened there? That happens twice a month in our staff meetings. And it's always fun. It's always crazy. But it is a very much a prove it mentality. Um, if you tell me you love uh, Romeo and Juliet, like, you know, we saw our friend quote up here last week, prove it, right? Quote it. Prove it mentality. Well, that's all fun and games. But here, the soldiers and the Senate are essentially saying, look, Jesus, you have said this. If you are this, put your money where your mouth is and prove it. Show me. Because you don't look like a king right now. You don't look like an anointed one right now. You don't look like one that God has favor on right now. You look bloody and beat up and nails driven through your body. Here's the irony. Have you ever thought about the irony Because me, when I read this, I'm like, Jesus, I know how the story ends. But even when I read it today, I'm like, get off the cross and start zapping people. That would be awesome. But, hey, it would not be awesome. Because the irony of them saying, prove it, save yourself, if Jesus takes himself off that cross, we got a problem. You and I have a problem. These criminals have a problem. The religious have a problem. These soldiers have a problem. There is no salvation outside of a broken, crucified, and dead, and resurrected Messiah. And so the irony is the very thing that these guys are asking Jesus to do, he loves them too much to do it, when he could do it all along. See, everything they can perceive with their senses the smell of Jesus' blood, the smell of a trash heap, the the visualization, what I can see that Jesus is losing here, what I hear, everything I can perceive tells me Jesus is not who he says he is and he's losing here. And that's just not what's going on there. You ever ask Jesus to show you? To prove it? And I, I, I remember when I was in my 20s. I spent half of my 20s working in a coffee shop in Dallas, a couple coffee shops in Dallas, barista to store manager, kind of all along that um, spectrum. And um, if you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, you know that things get really dirty, extremely dirty, and nothing more dirty than a drain. And you know that if you clean out drains, if you've got a wife that sheds hair and you've got to clean out a drain in your shower, drains are nasty, but you gotta You got to be committed to clean them out or something bad's going to happen. And um, So one of the things we had to do every single week was clean the drains. And I love the smell of bleach and Clorox. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I remember, here's what you need to know about coffee shop drains, besides they're gross. They grow things in them. Because you're heating milk up to like 165 degrees, which is not normal. And then when it's cooling off, things grow. A couple three four hours later things grow so when milk and then acidic espresso is going down a drain things grow like when you would take off the drain cover it was like barnacles on there and you would scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape pull stuff out and I'll never forget this one time that I was cleaning out a drain and we wanted to have a family I had two degrees on my wall I had a bachelor's and a master's degree and I just remember thinking, what am I doing sitting here cleaning out a drain? What, what is going on here? It did not, everything I could perceive did not make sense. This is not the deal I struck with you. This is not why I got into this. That's not why I went to school. I didn't, no, nobody goes to school to sign up to scrub drains. Nobody. Lord got a wife, we want to have a family I'm sitting here scrubbing a drain Lord what are you doing? You've got to show me why this makes sense Lord you've got to prove why you're in this thing because I cannot there's no evidence around me that tells me that I should be here scrubbing a drain. That's not the story I signed up for. You ever done that? You ever done that with Jesus? Ask him to prove it So look, I know how this usually shows up in here. There's kind of two ways this this might show up in your life. And and the first way it may show up, maybe there's four or five of you in here that are just skeptics. And look, you, you may have the tag atheist that you like or agnostic, or you may not like either one of those tags. You just might be someone in here that just is never satisfied with the amount of evidence that can be put in front of you. There's never enough evidence to verify or validate Jesus is who he says he is. We're like the burden of proof is on everybody else to put enough evidence in front of you. Maybe that's you. We're like, show me, prove it. Or or maybe you are um, the person that just comes, is faithful here every single week. But when the chips are down and things aren't working out the way you thought they should work out, you're like, God, you got to prove it here. you got to show me what's going on here. The reality is when we ask Jesus to prove it or to show me, we miss out on the fact that he already has. He's already shown us. He's already proven it. He, he did it all through the Gospels, where he announced before the cross, I'm headed to the cross. Nobody should be surprised if I'm going to the cross. I've been telling you forever, I'm going there. He's shown us when he kept himself on the cross. It doesn't take a lot of power for Jesus to get off the cross. It doesn't take a ton of um, control to get off the cross for Jesus. It takes a ton of power and a ton of self-control for Jesus to keep himself on the cross for you and I. Paul writes in Ephesians and in Romans. So what does this mean today, right? The cross happened, you know. Several years ago, what does this mean for the church today? And what it means for the church today is how God shows us he loves us is by going back to the cross. God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Romans 5.8 says, goes on in Romans 8, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? If you're here today and you're like, God, show me and prove it, God just wants to take you back. I already have, and I've got some great in store for you. The religious asked Jesus to show me. The rebellious asked Jesus to serve me. The rebellious asked Jesus to serve me. Picking up here in verse 39, here's what it says. One of the criminals who were hanged railed. So we got scoffing, we got mocking, we got railing, saying, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us." See, this man had wanted this man wanted something from Jesus more than he wanted Jesus. And when he says, "Save, save yourself." He's mocking just like the first group of people did, but he's adding something in there and save me. Here's what we know based on the second guy we're gonna look at in just a minute is that this guy did not view, when he says save me, he's not saying, Jesus, you're my savior there. He's saying, give me relief from the cross. I don't like these consequences. The pain's too intense. Look, justice, Whatever, you know, this is a guy that's trying to work the system and it does not love justice, just wants relief. These nails are painful. Get me down. Get me down. But what stands out the most with this guy is he never identifies himself as a lawbreaker. He just wants Relief. If you ever wanted something from Jesus more than you've wanted him, like this guy, I, I can give you an example in the last two weeks. And um, so this is, I'm about to share with you maybe an illustration of the biggest first world problem ever, which is to start with, my family and I left Dallas for 12 days. Let's start there, first world problem, okay? Then we drove to Wyoming. Southgate, Moran, uh, the Grand Tetons. It was incredible. We were going to stay with some friends up there. And um, it was in a, like the most majestic week I think we've had as a family. First world problem. And um, right before we leave to go to Wyoming, we find out that some of our other friends at Watermark Plain are like, hey, we've got friends that have a house and a cabin in um, southern Colorado. You can tell they would love for you guys to go stay with them. And we're going to. Finish off the trip going to stay in Lubbock, which is where my wife's family's from. Now, nothing's first world about Lubbock, right? There's no, that's not where you want to go for a hot vacation spot. If that offends you, come talk to me. I've got a case I can plead about that. But all the cousins are there, and my kids want to be with the cousins. So basically, Lubbock canceled on us, and also the cabin in Southern Colorado canceled because they had evacuate the town because of the forest fires. So we're like, okay, we've got a whole week. I'm looking, it's like 115 in Dallas. I'm waking up there and it's like 50, sorry. Um, it's like 115 there. Some friends have got us a car, so we're, we don't have to worry about a car. And um, Kyle Kaler's already re- approved my vacation request. I'm not coming back to Dallas unless I have to. Here's where the first world problem comes in. Is, um when I found out all that canceled, I started texting my friends that like may know somebody. And I was like, hey, you know, this is what happens. Cabin's canceled. You know anybody that like would want to redirect the resources to the berries? I'm okay. Look, if Vail's all you can give me, that's great. Vail's booked. We'll take Telluride. We're not picky. Just whatever. And nothing. I mean, nothing. Friends were like, hey, I'll, you know, find out. Nothing. And um, a couple days into just asking friends, I'm like, I got to i am got to change my strategy. I better start praying about this. And let me tell you, this guy could not have prayed more biblically. I'm quoting scripture back at God, okay? Psalm 24, Lord, you own it all. The earth, right, all who live in it, First Chronicles 29, 11, 12, everything's yours. The heavens, the earth, everything's yours. The, the cattle on a thousand hills, that's all yours. If you could just redirect some of that my way in, like, just west of Denver. That'd be great. <laughs> and, um, you know, our time in into Washington. Our friends left. We got in our car. We left Moran, started driving south. It was like an eight- or nine-hour trip. And sometime after Moran passed, so an hour into the drive, I'm at 10 and 2, and it just hit me that I had turned Jesus into a genie. And um, I wanted something from Jesus more than I wanted him. And it crushed my soul. And I just remember being attentive to, just saying, Lord, I, I repent, I am sorry. The fact that I have been going to you fervently in prayer about this first world problem and not because you've chosen to put air in my lungs right now, something's messed up there. And Lord, will you forgive me? I didn't get what I wanted there, but I got what I needed. What I wanted was a place in veil. What I needed was a reminder that God will not be turned into a genie. He's too awesome for that. And he loves you too much to let Him let you think that he is. So maybe you haven't gone to God as a genie. Uh, maybe, maybe you've done one of two things. Maybe you're someone that's made a deal with God. Hey, serve me. Hey, if you do this, I will do this. And it could be as extreme as like, Lord, if you do this, I'll, I'll be faithful all the days of my life. Just be faithful. Hey, if you'll change this pay, you know, pressure point in my marriage, I'll do this. My wife does this, I'll do this. No, just be faithful. Maybe you've cut a deal with the Lord. Maybe you had to do with your kids if we could just get my kid to pass this test. That's usually what it looks like in my house. We'll just, you know, we'll say thank you. Say thank you if he fails. So maybe you've cut a deal. Or maybe you're like this criminal that just wants relief. And you want to cut a deal with Jesus. Paul talks about cutting a deal with Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians comes after 1 Corinthians where Paul is like extremely Direct calling them to repent of numerous things because there's no life if you're pursuing things other than where Jesus is. And he is very harsh with his words and so he picks up in 2 Corinthians 7 with his second letter. And he's just like, look, I'm sorry that was harsh and direct, but I wanted to produce godly sorrow in you, not worldly sorrow. So here's the difference between those two. Here's what worldly sorrow looks like. It looks like the criminal here. Just give me more relief from my circumstances. I'm sorrowful. This this could look like one of you know, several things. Here's what we see all the time. I'm going to use a guy here. This could this could translate for anybody, but it's a husband that's just been a horrible husband. And after 15, 20 years, his wife's like, "Hey, enough's enough. I'm out of here." And the guy's so concerned with his wife moving back in. I'm just lonely and I miss her. And da 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 da. Versus. The state of this marriage, honey, the state of this marriage isn't where it's at because I have not loved you and served you and I've sinned against you. And the state of this marriage is my fault. You'll never hear that out of somebody with worldly sorrow. You'll hear, I just, I just want relief. Just change the circumstances. Yeah, I, I know my, my sin God is here, but just, if you could just change, I'm sorrowful things aren't the way they are. Or in community groups, when you have someone who's in a community group that said they're fully devoted to Jesus and they're living just a lifestyle that's marked by rebellion towards Jesus and unrepentant sin, the scriptures are very clear. Look, we need to love them. There's a process set in place. But if if they want to continue to live that way, we've got to change our relationship with them and we need to break fellowship with them because it's just... Unloving to let someone continue to live deluded that, hey, you're in community and you're safe here, but you're living like crazy. You're gonna die, and I love you too much to let you think we're okay with you and you're okay with God. And so the way worldly sorrow shows up in that scenario is where we're like, we've gotta change our relationship with you, and people are like, oh no, like, just, just let me keep hanging out here. Just, hey, just love me, and hey, this is painful it's not graceful to break relationships with somebody. It's not loving to do that. It's, it's consumed with the pain versus, hey, I have sinned and I need to repent because I want to follow Jesus. So worldly sorrow has to do with relieve me from the circumstances and pain and I hate the way things are right now. Now, godly sorrow on the other end has to do with just that. I'm a lawbreaker. Things are the way they are because I have messed things up, and it crushes me that I've offended God. And because I've offended God, there's all these downline consequences, but at the end of the day, I'm responsible here. That's what godly sorrow looks like. So maybe that shows up for you. Maybe by cutting a deal with the Lord, where you've turned him in, you're just like, hey, serve me, or serve me, just get me off the cross because I don't like the pain I'm in right now. One of those two things shows up a lot. Here's the deal. When we demand for Jesus to serve us, we miss out on the fact that he already has served us. He took on our judgment because he was serving us. He reconciled because he was serving us. He took our sin on him to serve us. He gave us his righteousness. He imputed that to us to serve us. He put our interests before his own to serve us. And he does it today. He does it today. He intercedes on our behalf. He holds all things together. He gives us the model of how we're supposed to love each other in relationships. He serves us today. The religious ask that Jesus would show them. The rebellious ask for Jesus to serve them. And last but not least, the righteous asked Jesus to save me. Look at verse 40 here. The other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see where this guy starts? I'm a lawbreaker. You are a lawbreaker. We are getting what we deserve here. This man has done nothing wrong. Salvation always starts with raising your hand, saying, I am a lawbreaker, and I deserve this. This criminal gets thrown into a lot of conversations. He's like the trump card for, oh, what about the thief on the cross? What are you going to do with him and his life? He lived like a wretch his whole life. What are you going to do with him? I'll tell you what I'm going to do with him. This guy has the proper perspective of Jesus. And he has a proper perspective of himself. He has a faith that trusts in Jesus. And we say all the time, because the scripture says all the time, that you are saved by grace through faith and not, let me say that again, not by works. But we are saved for good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This criminal on the cross was saved so he could be Christ's ambassador. He was saved so he could be his minister of reconciliation. Same reason you and I have been saved. And so we're not saved by good works, but good works should come out of the faith we have. And this criminal, we see it in spades. You see what he did? The guy that has faith in Jesus is turning to the criminal on his right or left and rebuking him and reminding him of what is biblically true. You are a lawbreaker. This man has done nothing wrong. He's the Christ. He is who he says he is. This is a man whose faith is at work right now. Don't miss that. It's crazy to to look at what he says next. The criminal just looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Think about how crazy that is. If you were that criminal looking at Jesus, he has a title over his head that says King of Jews. The guy's got three nails in his body. He is bleeding profusely. He is lacerated. He is dying of asphyxiation because you've got to push yourself up on the cross to breathe. And to look at Jesus in that state where everything looks like it's done. Jesus is losing. And to look at him and to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's absurd. And it's biblical. Because nothing looked like that man was about to inherit a kingdom. It looked like he was about to die and be thrown to the dogs. And here's what this criminal's saying. He's saying two things. Jesus, you are who you say you are. I don't know how things are going to work out. I just don't, things don't look good right now, but things are going to work out. And you are who you say you are. And I am betting the farm that I'm going to, you would just remember me when you come in your kingdom. Whenever that is, Whenever you come in your kingdom, just remember me. Here's the second thing he's saying. Jesus, you are all that I have. And he's not using his hands because he's crucified too. You are all that I have, and I'm betting the farm that you are who you say you are. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And maybe what's the craziest reply in all scripture, outside of but God, what Chuck mentioned earlier and quoted, is Jesus response here. Look at how he responds. Today he's going to say three important things here. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Let me unpack that first thing. Today Jesus when you come in your kingdom, Jesus is like, no no no, there's no when I come into my kingdom. Today Today, something's going to change about your life. Here's a biblical picture, just an oversimplified picture of death, because it makes sense of what that means today. Death, essentially, when we were created by God, we were created with a material and immaterial, with a body and a soul. And those two things should have never been split apart, they were one until death entered the scene in Galatians, I mean Galatians, entered there too, in Genesis chapter three. And death enters the scene and the punishment for sin is not only a broken relationship with the Lord, but death. Two things that were together that should never be ripped apart were ripped apart. And when Adam and Eve died and everybody else, two things are split up and the body goes in the ground and becomes dust. And your soul, if you're a follower of Christ, goes to be with Jesus. And the ultimate hope for Christians is that one day, not only with the cross, but ultimately that salvation is going to climax when Jesus returns and pulls this dust of my body out of the grave, reunites it with my soul, and I'm going to have a resurrected, imperishable body just like Jesus that doesn't sin, doesn't crave sin, doesn't want to sin, that can like walk through walls, however all that works. It's going to be an awesome thing. But we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about death. And so when Jesus says today, what he's saying is, hey, today when you die on this cross and your body goes to the dogs probably, you will, your soul will be with me, with me. Paul picks us up in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians chapter 1. He says, and this is the chief of all sinners saying this, so another guy that just could go, I've got a horrible resume to bring before God, just like this criminal. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. What he's saying is when when death sets in and we're away from our body, we will be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, I desire to depart, meaning die, and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Jesus wants to remind this character, this criminal, this righteous, and he wants to remind you today that death is a horrible thing, that God will ultimately redeem. But something will happen at a blink of an eye when you die. You'll be with Christ if you know him. Second thing he says is with me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you see what Paul just said there? Not Jesus, but Paul. At home with the Lord, he said, depart and be with Christ. Here's the deal. Here's Here's the message for us. If we've got a view of the cross that doesn't ultimately end with Christ, you have an inadequate view of the cross. If you have a view of Jesus taking your sins that doesn't ultimately end with Christ, you have an inadequate view of that. If you have a view of Jesus giving you all of his righteousness that doesn't end with Christ, you have an inadequate view about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. If you have a view of heaven that doesn't end with Christ, you're more fired up about whatever in heaven You've got an inadequate view of heaven. And that shows up every day. When we open up God's word, if we're opening up for information and not to be with Christ, we are reading that for the wrong reason. God has saved us to be with him, to reconcile us back to him. And the last thing he says is, in paradise. In paradise. Here's what the, the listeners, the Jewish listeners would have known at that time. When they heard the word paradise at the request of a kingdom, they would have gone instantly in their mind to the Garden of Eden. And guess what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve walked with Christ, with the Lord in perfect fellowship. But Jesus is like, look, this paradise isn't going to look like that because sin affected that one. Where you're going is a paradise where it's going to be just me and no sin. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I don't know your story when you, um, Jesus became real to you. I grew up in a church where um, I knew something about Jesus I was faithful. I was there every single Sunday. Um, I saw a cross every single Sunday. But it wasn't until I was 16 that I came to know Jesus. But I didn't just come to know Jesus. I came face to face with the fact that I was a lawbreaker. And lawbreakers need saviors. When When the God of the universe is holy, And says things like, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And you're like, who can do that? You've only got one option. You can't be good enough to get in a relationship with God. You need a Savior. And that's what happened when I was 16. The cross made sense. It was the first time where I knew I needed Jesus, not something from Him. He needed to be my Savior. It'd be years later until I realized that um, I kept asking Jesus to show me, serve me, show me, prove it. And here's how that showed up at Starbucks. Sorry, that's the coffee shop I worked at. Doesn't really matter. But when I was scrubbing that drain, and it didn't make sense, I'm saying, God, prove it, show me, tell me what's going on. Here's what I didn't know until years later that God was like, Rob, you can't love people. You can't even love your own wife. You're arrogant, you're prideful, you're entitled. That degree means nothing in my economy. Neither does the second one. It means nothing to me. It's a piece of paper. It's going to be in a trash heap of someday. That drain, those barnacles on that drain, that was God's provision for me. That nasty drain was God showing me, proving to me, and serving me because he can't use people like that. As Chuck said, he wants to use broken people, and that was God's provision to break me. But I I couldn't see it at the time, just like nobody could see it at the time that Jesus was going to do what he said he was going to do. And Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And God was faithful with that drain in my life. I don't know what that is for you, but here's what I know about this passage. I don't know what your drain is. This passage is the exclamation point in a sentence that just says this. Jesus loves you, and he loves outsiders. This passage is an exclamation point if you feel like an outsider here, here's the simple call. Get to know Jesus. My friends and I will be down front after the service. We'd love to help you take that next step with Jesus. If you're someone that's an insider, then what a great opportunity to know Jesus more. To know Jesus more. If you're an outsider, here's what you need to know, that the Father sent Jesus to show the world himself He sent Jesus to serve the world, and he sent Jesus to save you. And if you're an insider, just as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending you and I to show the world Jesus. He is sending us to serve others, and he's sending us to show people Jesus is the Savior of the world. I don't know what you thought about when you listen to Chuck up here um, talk about how he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl. But I bet it's similar to the way I felt when I started regeneration almost nine or ten years ago. It was called something different. It was called Celebrate Recovery then. I literally went because my wife was like, you are messed up and you need to go get well. And after about, you know, you hear that enough, you're like, oh, gosh, I need to get her off my back. And if something else comes out of this, great. And I remember sitting in that region circle for about the first 8 to 12 weeks, looking at crazy porn addicts, crazy alcoholics, crazy drug abusers, crazy men that were lying to their wives. that was like normal, crazy, 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 crazy. And just thinking, they're crazy. There's nothing, there's nothing in their there to identify with. And two things happen over the course of 52 weeks. One, the joy and the freedom to be able to look someone in their eyes that you've offended and just say, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me for that? The freedom that comes with this is incredible. The second thing I took away, and maybe the only other thing I remember from that 52 weeks, nine or 10 years ago, I could look at every single person in that circle and just say, I am nothing like you and I'm everything like you. I have not binged on drugs the way you have, but the way you talk about craving, desiring, and wanting to fill something in your life with something other than Jesus, I'm just like you. I'm just like you, I'm just like you, and I'm just like Chuck, and so are you. On the cross, Jesus showed us who he was. He served us, he saved us, The Romans and the religious ask Jesus to show me, and they miss he already has. The rebellious ask Jesus to serve me, and they miss the fact that he already has. The righteous ask Jesus to save me. And we find that he welcomes all of us with open arms. This passage is the exclamation point that God loves you and loves outsiders. Let's pray. Father, would you just help us, starting with me, would you help me believe this passage? Would you help us believe that we need you more than anything we need from you? Would you help us repent if we've turned you into a genie Father would you help us view ourselves as an outsider? Father would you help us be able to put our finger on our depravity where we can say we're a lawbreaker? Father would you help our depravity be real so our savior is real and his offer is real? Father would you help us in the same way that you sent Jesus, will you help us be faithful? your ambassadors, your ministers of reconciliation. Will you just help us say thank you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.